I estimate that I spoke to over 500 potential investors. Now, of course, I spoke to many more people to get to the potential investors. And the personal cost along the way was tremendous. At the same time, clearly, I'm a serial entrepreneur, so I keep doing it again because building companies is the most rewarding thing I can think to do. Hey, welcome to Finding Your Venture episode number 15. This one's called You Probably Haven't Pitched Enough People. And the guest today is Jen Baird. There are 7.8 billion people in the world and in the early days of your startup, you really just need a couple of them to pay attention to what you're doing to validate the idea. So it makes total sense that most people are gonna ignore you. And even though you know that, it's really uncomfortable to be rejected. And that's why most people avoid it. So the number one issue I see with rising entrepreneurs is that they haven't pitched enough people. They just haven't told their story to enough people to find the ones who care. So the goal of this episode is to recalibrate your expectations about how much of that you're going to have to face. You're going to hear a story from Jen Baird. Jen's a five-time founder. Her best-known win is with Accuracy Cytometers, which was sold for $205 million in 2011. All right, you ready? Let's hear Jen's story. My name is Jen Baird, and I'm a serial venture-backed entrepreneur, and I've raised over $50 million from over 160 investors across four different startups so far. And today, I just want to talk about that whole experience of fundraising and what that looks like, um, because it seems like every time I close a fundraising round, somebody, always somebody not close to me, actually congratulates me and says how amazing it is that I'm able to just pull together these fundraising rounds. And they seem to think it's luck or opportunity or network or track record. And there's no doubt that all of those things contribute. However, the most underappreciated aspect of raising money for startups is perseverance. And I want to just take you back to the first time that I was initially raising money for my very first ultimately venture-backed startup, which was Accuracy Cytometers. As a CEO, my number one job was to make sure that my startup had the resources needed to become a success, also known as fundraising. And effectively, that felt like having two full-time jobs. The first was building my company, and the second was fundraising for it. So back in 2004, my CTO and I co-founded the company, and we bootstrapped it for the first year while we were doing things like getting a license, building a business plan, beginning product development, and working like absolute crazy to raise our initial round of capital. And to get that first $800,000 in the door and to get us off of our savings spend plan, which is what we were doing, I had to talk to over 100 potential investors over the course of nine months to just get that first 14 initial angel investors in the door. And I had a no rate of over 85%. And every one of those potentials was a whole series of contacts of emails and phone calls, more or less for, for each one. It wasn't one conversation and it wasn't uh, one contact to get through to them. That first 800,000 round only lasted eight months, which was less than the time it took to actually raise it. And what that really means is that after I closed the round, I took a breath for about a month or two to actually build value by building a company and then begin raising my next round. And for me, that meant traveling all over Michigan, meeting with angel group after angel group after angel group, many of whom opted not to invest after I'd worked my way through their multi-step processes. I had to extend my reach further in the Midwest to talk to other angel groups, even as I was simultaneously seeking meetings with VCs. So this was every day, lots of contacts and reaching out and being having people go silent and never speaking to me again. And about another hundred or so no's later, 
I was able to close a $1.6 million convertible note to keep the company growing and going for another eight months. Then I took another couple of months to build value and began raising again. So once again, traveled the angel group circuit, spoke to every introduction I could muster, simultaneously continued the long, slow process of cultivating relationships with potentially interested VCs. This time, the convertible note round totaled $2.7 million, but I had to break it into two closings to get the early cash I needed to keep going and not die mid-process, and a later investment a couple months later, later closing to extend that runway. The total round took us another 10 months. Notice I haven't yet raised money for longer than a year. Once again, I experienced no's in the triple digits, but I did manage by this time to have grown my angel investor group to a total of 53. So my first round, I had 14, and by um, this time, I was at a total of uh, 53 angels. And, and when I think about it, a pretty good estimate would be, I probably talked to 10 or 15 angels for every angel that I actually landed. Now, it was much spottier than that. They came in clusters and groups. So it wasn't like a steady average, but the number of people that I had to talk to to actually land one was tremendous. But by the time we had built all of that, and we were basically at $5 million raised, we had nearly completed our product, and my angel investors were getting a little less interested in continuing to invest in more rounds because many of them had been in four rounds so far. By then, I had pitched literally dozens of VCs, and as usual, almost every VC had declined to enter due diligence. But now that we're starting to get a glimmer because I now almost had a product and there was one potential lead VC investor who'd been talking to me for over a year, it was about 14 months, and he was monitoring each bit of incremental progress, and each additional convertible note. And as we were beginning to field test our instruments, he began to get serious. In parallel, I was able to get a second VC to start due diligence independently. This was key because once I had two, I had the opportunity to encourage them to engage um, because VCs generally would like to just wait until you hit the next whatever milestone. So I used the fact that there were two of them to move them towards term sheets. Over the course of three months, that process took. We did manage to sign one term sheet just before Christmas. Over that Christmas uh, holiday season, quote unquote, we met as a board of directors literally every day except Christmas Day. And the only reason we took that day off is because we just declared that Christmas was too important. We were not going to meet that day. In that process, over that same period of time, I developed two ear infections, a sinus infection and walking pneumonia. I had to leave my family in Florida to drive home without me so I could fly back for a VC due diligence meeting on January 2nd. Those are some of the personal costs that come with some of this fundraising. And two weeks later, that same VC that had signed that term sheet cut our valuation in half and created a down round. Because I didn't have any other options at that point, I had to fight through my existing investor base to get the new terms accepted. We spent a few more months getting the rest of the syndicate built out and finally closed the $5 million round. So now I was officially leading a venture-backed company. Fast forward three years, three more rounds later, Accurate had a fantastic exit, 10 times revenue, over $200 million, and all the investors made five to six times their money. So it was a great win in the end. But that early stage of kind of getting the company stood up, getting that initial fundraising done, took an enormous amount of perseverance. I estimate that I spoke to over 500 potential investors. Now, of course, I spoke to many more people to get to the potential investors, to get to that $10 million in capital that carry us through product development. And the personal cost along the way was tremendous. At the same time, clearly, I'm a serial entrepreneur, so I keep doing it again because 
building companies is the most rewarding thing I can think to do. But the work involved, I think, is vastly underestimated. And my path is in no way, shape, or form unique. Talk to many entrepreneurs who, when gently pushed, will share that they cannot believe how many people they need to talk to as they raise money for their startup. And when you start reaching the tri- triple digits of contacts, then I recommend you stop counting and keep going because you have to focus on those people who are interested and supportive and ignore the people who say no because the people who are interested and supportive are the only ones that matter and you can't get frustrated by the amount of no's that you get in the process. Okay, so Jen had to find and maintain 500 different relationships in order to get fundraising done for Accury. Now you're getting a sense for scale. And keep in mind that Accury was like this huge success. And so it's possible that the number for you is going to have to be a lot bigger. Now we're starting to get a sense for scale in terms of the number of conversations that you're going to have to have. Next, I want to talk about strategies for actually doing this work. When I get up in the morning and go to the office, what am I actually doing to source and have these 500 conversations? I asked Jen that question. Let's listen to her answer. I keep extensive contact lists. I have literally thousands of contacts. And when I talk to somebody, I make notes about it. I follow up. I use at least a three strikes rule. If I'm trying to reach somebody, I will contact them three times via email and at least via one other, like I'll either call, leave a voicemail, text, depends on how I know them. But I'll try and use different modes of communication to see if I can get a response. I view it as my responsibility to keep pursuing rather than the other way around. But I also need to be polite and sensitive to if they're really saying no, I need to respect that. But a lot of times it's just getting lost in spam and I need to try and find another way. I was just in a sales process this week, you know, and I called somebody else and I said, do you know this person that I don't know? Yes. Do they usually respond to this email? Yes, they do. And so I sent out a group email And then I sent out a personal email to them specifically saying, could we get your level of interest in this deal? So those kinds of pursuits are a huge part of it is, you know, writing emails, trying to have phone conversations, trying to have individual conversations. I also go out and about. I try and be out in the entrepreneurial community where I'm going to run into people or meet people and have an opportunity to talk. Now, that's a challenge right now in COVID-19 days where we are not able to kind of be out congregating, but I'm hopeful that that won't always be true. And actually being out talking to people is really powerful in terms of building that network and asking each person that you meet, who else could I talk to about this? While we were recording this session, Jen and I were talking about what a gift it is when somebody gives you a fast no, because it helps you move on more quickly to find the next person that might actually be interested in what you're selling. Nobody likes to hear no. It's not a fun thing. And the thing that you have to be really alert to is people don't like to tell you no. And so you may walk away thinking that was a great conversation. And it might have been a no. By the very nature, many of the people that you meet aren't a good fit. And it's not your fault. And it's not their fault. It just is the nature of the beast. And so you have to touch many people to actually find the places where that sweet spot comes together. I really like the way Jen said that it's not their fault and it's not your fault. That's just a way of thinking about all the rejection in a way that doesn't feel hurtful or too personal. As we were wrapping up, Jen did give me some good news though. It does get easier as you get further out in your career and you have some success. My husband is, he's like, people have no idea how hard you work at these things. And they're right because I don't 
share that. You don't want to say, oh, like 90% of the people I talked to have all said no to this. How about you? <laughs> people don't talk about that effort because it doesn't actually advance the story line that you want to have out there. But it's only much, much later in the process that uh, like when your company is selling like gangbusters, it did get easier in accuracy days. You know, we, we had, we were turning investors away for sure. And it got easier. And this is one of the reasons I didn't talk about my most recent startup because there's no question it's easier for me, you know, startup number four, because I already have the network and I already have, I know who to call and I can get a meeting and I have a much higher hit rate now than I did back then. It's still a ton of work. But that doesn't that story doesn't help the people that are starting out. That's not what it's like when you're starting out. All right, there you go. Thank you, Jen, for helping us understand that we're probably not pitching enough people. Before I go, I want to say thank you to Grammatics for our theme music for season two. And thank you to the Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Michigan for giving us a chance to teach this class and connect with so many great students. We've got 11 more episodes coming up in season two of Finding Your Venture and... I'm having an absolute blast putting this together. Thanks for listening. 